Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, Executive Chair of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person or at one of our 175 locations, online or over our toll-free helpline, you're getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. The phrase, do no harm, is as foundational to the practice of medicine as we the people is to American democracy. Yet, as the past year has shown in example after heartbreaking example, not all people are treated equally or well by the American healthcare system. COVID is just the most recent example of how healthcare inequity harms communities of color, gender diversity, and creates economic hardships. Today's guest has been working since he was in medical school to change this trajectory by educating and empowering members of the black community, his community, to address the critical health issues that affect them. Dr. Joseph Ravenel is a general internist, clinical educator, and clinician investigator with a health equity research focus. He is currently the the director of the Cancer Prevention Navigation Program of the Perlmutter Cancer Center at NYU Langone Health. He also serves as professor, professor of population health and medicine and associate dean for diversity affairs and inclusion at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Ravenel is also co-director of the Beatrice W. Welters Breast Health Outreach and Navigation Program, which helps women in underserved communities access breast cancer diagnosis, treatment, and support services. In 2010, he launched the Men's Health Initiative, a community-based research and outreach program to address health inequities in New York City. Dr. Ravenel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Kim. It's a real honor for me to be on your show today. Well, I'm going to jump right in. We have a lot to cover, um, Dr. Ravenel. You have been a passionate advocate for better health outcomes in the black community for a long time. And I'm wondering, of all the many paths you could have taken, what led you to use research uh, to achieve this goal, and how did it lead to your project, Brotherhood? So I am the son of two ministers, actually, Um, and uh, I knew pretty early on that I I did not want to don the uh, cloth, um, so to speak. Uh, I was always interested in uh, medicine, and I had, um, in my my first year in uh, medical school, an experience where uh, I worked with one of my uh, most influential mentors, Dr. Eric Eric Whitaker, to really uh, understand uh, why black men in uh, Chicago didn't utilize primary care uh, to the level you might expect for a group of uh, people who have uh, the highest uh, death rates from many conditions like high blood pressure, uh, colorectal cancer, and others that are amenable uh, to 
prevention and treatment with early identification. Um, and so uh, I learned in that first summer uh, some of the barriers that black men face in trying to access uh, primary care and what some of their attitudes and perceptions were um, around receiving health. Uh, around re- receiving healthcare, and um, as it turns out, before I graduated from from medical school, we were able to present our uh, research findings from talking to over a hundred black men in that one single summer, uh, which ended up in us receiving funding to actually start Project Brotherhood in Chicago, a black men's clinic staffed by uh, black, black male doctors, uh, but also had uh, uh, a, an, a terrific focus on the social determinants of health, which we learned uh, really were at the root of some of the reasons that black men did not seek primary health care. So, Dr. Turk Revan, I'll dive down a little bit deeper. Tell us more about what you were looking for in that study. What was the focus? What did you hope to learn? So we hoped to learn two major things. Uh, What are black men's perceptions about health? And two, what are some of the barriers that keep men away from utilizing uh, primary care and preventive services uh, generally, things like uh, cancer cancer screening? And so we learned a couple of critical lessons. Uh, The first lesson we learned was that uh, black men think about health in a much broader way than we uh, traditionally framed health. So uh, among the 100 men or, or so that we spoke, with, uh, health was about more than just having a good blood pressure, uh, about not being overweight, about having a good blood sugar, but it also included things like feeling good about yourself, about looking good, about being able to uh, have a job, being able to impart lessons to your children, and being able to safely navigate your neighborhood to get to know your uh, neighbors. Uh, And if you didn't have all of those things, even if you felt good, Many of the men did not consider themselves to be healthy. Uh, And we wanted to also understand what kept them away from utilizing uh, primary health care services. And for many of the men, it was uh, having personally had negative uh, experiences uh, accessing health in the past, either in the form of not being treated with uh, respect when they came into a, a clinical setting, uh, feeling that they uh, experienced racism. Um, there was a lot of uh, medical mistrust uh, related to uh, the Tuskegee experiment that was that was well known among the men that we uh, spoke with. And uh, it is amazing how relevant those conversations we had back then, uh, you know, over 20 years ago, how relevant those conversations mm-hmm. are to to uh, to medical trust or mistrust uh, uh, today. That's right. That's right. Um Dr. Revenant, can you help our listeners understand the importance uh, of barbershops in the black community? What makes them such a safe and, and, and trusted uh, space? We've seen the evolution of this in the context of, of men's well-being. Can you talk about that? 
Absolutely. So, uh, so one of the real uh, innovations of Project Brotherhood was that it actually brought barbers into the clinical setting as an incentive for men to come and get care. And I think that really speaks to uh, how important uh, barbershops and barbers are in the uh, black community. Uh, so today, uh, black, uh, uh, barbershops in the black community serve as, as places where men know they can come where they're going to find camaraderie, where camaraderie, they're going to find uh, compassion, they're going uh, to find solace, uh, and they're going to actually connect with uh, a group of, of men that they see often every two weeks, including their uh, barber. That uh, And we learned that on average, uh, black men have been with their barber for over seven years. And so if you think about that for a, a, a minute, Right. Uh, if you if you're going and seeing someone every two weeks, you develop an incredible relationship with that uh, person. Actually, very different from uh, the relationships that we often uh, form in in healthcare, where we're seeing our uh, doctors, you know, and our providers, you know. Uh, uh, a couple times a year. Um, and so uh, what we see in the uh, barbershops are, are, are uh, two, are, are uh, many-fold. One, it is a safe space that is really conducive to uh, conversations, and it's a place where you can trust the uh, people in there uh, to, both, uh, to both guard your secrets as well as to give you uh, advice on a whole range of things, whether you've asked for the advice or not. So I, 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 it's a very unique strategy asking barbers to serve as healthcare um, uh, communicators. Can you just take a quick minute to walk us through the the training process of these barbers? Yes. So it uh, turns out that uh, that uh, 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 barbers actually see great value in uh, healthcare. Back in the uh, Renaissance days, barbers were actually called uh, barber surgeons because they would they used to perform uh, minor medical procedures in addition to uh, in addition to providing grooming services, and that uh, tradition actually carries through to current barber training. In almost every state, barbers have to be licensed, which means that they have to uh, undergo some type of uh, formal training. And we learned from barbers both in Texas as well as here in New York City, where, where, where I am currently, uh, that health really is pervasive in the curricula that, that uh, barbers have to uh, participate in. And so when we approached barbers and uh, and let them know about our idea of actually uh, partnering with them to identify a uh, condition like high blood pressure in their customers to try to help their customers live longer, more, uh, more uh, full, fulfilling lives. Uh, they were right on board, and it took very little uh, convincing for us uh, to get them on board. And so uh, when, when I was in Dallas, Texas, we actually uh, got uh, funding from the National Institutes of Health and uh, a couple of other funding agencies to actually teach barbers how to measure blood pressure and how to counsel their customers on going to the doctor if their blood pressure was uh, high. Uh, and when I came to uh, New York City, uh, I partnered with several folks in the cancer screening world, uh, and we basically mm. ex uh, extended the, the idea from measuring blood pressure to also focusing on cancer screening and specifically uh, colorectal cancer screening. 
Well, I know we're going to get to that in our next segment. Just very quickly, we're coming to our uh, coming to a break here, Dr. Ravenel. But but just quickly, what what? Tell me a lesson or two that you learned from this experience and the study itself. So uh, I learned one that uh, barbers are uh, phenomenally talented people uh, who know how to connect to people and and how to get their customers, uh, you know, uh, to really uh, to really get involved in their health. They are are incredible allies. They are uh, trusted key opinion leaders. And, uh, you know, uh, whenever we're talking about health equity uh, for any community, I think finding those those trusted leaders in uh, in whatever community you're talking about, that really is the key uh, to us starting to uh, achieve equity. Yeah, I think that, that word tr- trust is a word that we're talking about a lot these days, and, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. Looking back at a study from so many years ago, we are having this conversation yet again, um, you know, in the context of COVID. This is, uh, frankly speaking, about cancer. We're talking with, uh, with Dr. Ravenel. We have, uh, we have to take a quick commercial break here, but when we come back, we've got uh, a lot to continue with our conversation um, with Dr. Ravenel. So trust me, you're not going to want to miss uh, a second of this conversation. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Thibaldeau. We will be right back after the break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're talking with Dr. Joseph Ravenel and learning more about his efforts to combat disparities in healthcare and improve the health outcomes of black men and women. Dr. Ravenel is a general internist, clinical educator, and a clinician investigator with a health equity research focus. Um, Dr. Ravenel, I first saw you speak a few years ago at the Biden Cancer Summit in Washington, D.C., where you shared the moving story about your friend who had died of colorectal cancer and how his experience influenced your next barbershop initiative and intervention. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So my barbershop work started in uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, as as I uh, described, we were focusing on, on uh, hypertension, which is uh, a major killer of uh, black men. Um, and so, uh, the the husband of one of my uh, of one of my team members, uh, he really um, took me under his wing when I moved from New York City down to uh, Dallas, Texas, and we developed an incredible friendship. Um, and so, um, when when I uh, made the move uh, back to uh, New York City. From uh, Dallas, after working with with his uh, wife for uh, several years, um, I got uh, the news that he actually um, was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. And at the time, he was about sixty years old, uh, which and uh, he actually got diagnosed uh, on his very first uh, colonoscopy. And I couldn't help but think, uh, you know, had colorectal cancer been a focus for uh, our barbershop work in uh, Dallas, uh, and had we been able to get him screened earlier, that we very likely uh, could could have saved the life of an incredible, incredible man. Uh, and so, you know, uh, that 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 memory actually stays with me uh, as I think about. Uh, all of the work that I am doing, and I think about every single man that I come into contact with, and it makes me believe that I really have to. Uh, it really is a, a calling for me to try to get as many men screened as possible, because with timely screening, uh, as you know, Kim, we can actually yes. prevent uh, people from uh, dying from this terrible disease. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And of course, we're seeing it, you know, an emerging change in the guidelines for colorectal cancer from 50, the age of 50 to the age of 45. So a whole new wave of, um, you know, having to communicate some of the new, um, you know, some of the new recommendations. But um, I'm curious, Dr. Revenel, was tackling colorectal cancer, you know, different from, from tackling hypertension and heart disease? I can imagine that people might be uncomfortable talking about a, a necessary, but what could be considered an invasive screening like a colonoscopy while getting a haircut, the prep and everything that's, um, that's involved. So compare and contrast for me. So you hit it right on the head, Kim, that talking about colorectal cancer is infinitely more difficult than talking about high blood pressure. And uh, one of the things that makes it more difficult is there is an incredible awareness of hypertension within the black community. Uh, in fact, uh, national data suggests that over 80% 
of black uh, Americans who have hypertension know that they have it. The same is certainly not true of uh, colorectal cancer. And in fact, uh, what we found was that many uh, black men knew that they were at higher risk for prostate cancer, but didn't know that black men uh, have the uh, highest uh, incidence or the the uh, highest uh, occurrence of colorectal cancer compared to any other group. Uh, and so, uh, number one, you know, talking about cancer, I think, is more scary for most people than talking about high uh, blood pressure. Um, and then, once we get to uh, what the actual screening procedure is, uh, and as you uh, mentioned, that it is perceived as uh, a very invasive um, procedure, talking about that uh, was definitely more difficult than talking about high blood pressure. But what we found was by actually going to the barbershop and approaching men first about high blood pressure, being able to establish a uh, rapport around that topic that's fairly easy to uh, talk about, uh, and then uh, being able to transition to talking about uh, colorectal cancer, we found that strategy to be very uh, successful. But whereas we were very easily able to convince men to put a blood pressure cuff on to get their blood pressure taken, uh, it often took more than one visit or, or one attempt at a barbershop uh, to convince men that they needed to uh, either undergo undergo a colonoscopy or to participate in uh, stool-based testing. Got it. Got it. Um, Dr. Ravenel, when I introduced you at the beginning of the show, I mentioned your work with the Beatrice W. Welter's Breast Health Outreach and Navigation Program. Tell our listeners more about this program. And I'm wondering, after years of working with men in the barbershop, has, has it been a different experience <laughs> reaching out to women? I'm going to guess the answer is yes. <laughs> So, yes, uh, definitely different. Um, and, you know, the uh, Beatrice Welters program, uh, really, uh, we are very fortunate at NYU uh, to, uh, to have um, uh, Mrs. Beatrice Welters. Um, she, uh, she is the one who uh, generously um, uh, funded the development of this program, which has been going strong for the last uh, six years. Um, and that program was really built around the model of outreach uh, that we were able to prove successful for uh, reaching men around uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, and so we basically took that uh, same model, and rather than focusing uh, exclusively on colorectal cancer in uh, barbershops, we actually went to uh, places where uh, women congregate. Uh, we went to churches. We went to uh, beauty salons, fitness classes, um, uh, lots of different community venues, and really went out there with the mission of educating and navigating as many women as, as possible for uh, breast cancer screening, but not just stopping there, but also if uh, anyone was found to, uh, to have uh, any type of breast health issue, including breast cancer, to not just stop at the screening, but also uh, to guide them to navigate women to diagnostic resolution 
and, uh, and ultimately to uh, treatment and, when appropriate, cancer clinical trials. Uh, and through that program with incredibly dedicated uh, navigators, we have been able to do outreach with uh, over 18,000 women, uh, and we have uh, navigated uh, over 1,000 women to, to breast health um, um, imaging and other types of uh, appointments. We also have uh, diagnosed over 20 breast cancers in women that I'm positive would not have otherwise been uh, diagnosed wow. and also been able to, to navigate a number of women to uh, cancer clinical trials, uh, something that uh, we know is underutilized by uh, uh, minority populations. Congratulations. Wow, some great numbers there, and so, so great to hear about that community outreach. Um, Dr. Revenel, the Centers for Disease Control has identified racism as a serious public health threat, and it worsens all other risk factors in underserved communities. So for listeners who may not be aware of the scope of the problem, you know, what does that mean exactly? You mentioned earlier in the show that, that phrase, social determinants of health. So what is the connection between racism, risk factors, and barriers to care? So uh, thank you for highlighting that uh, point, Kim. Uh, I am so happy that the CDC has recognized racism as a serious threat to uh, public health. I have long maintained that when it comes to social determinants of health, that is those things that are uh, outside of the, the purview of the uh, medical system, I have always felt that racism is the number one social determinant of health for people of color and specifically black people. Because as you just said, Kim, it, uh, it affects so many other factors uh, downstream. Uh, it, it, uh, the history of structural, of structural racism uh, in this country that goes all the way back to the days of slavery and then with Reconstruction and uh, Jim Crow, there has been uh, uh, systemic oppression and actually policies that uh, have actually uh, differentiated the the uh, healthcare that has been possible for Black people in, in this uh, country, uh, which is like uh, redlining, where uh, uh, in which neighborhoods uh, where there are lots of Black and Brown people were basically given a lower credit rating, which basically was a disincentive for for businesses uh, to to invest in these uh, communities. We have seen the impact of that, which has uh, resulted in differential access to education, differential access to employment opportunities, and ultimately differential access to, uh, to uh, health care. And we saw that uh, really manifest in a big way uh, with COVID, where we saw differential access to, to COVID testing and uh, several other services. But that really uh, is kind of COVID is really the uh, egg example for uh, disparities that we uh, have seen long before COVID, like disparities in colorectal cancer, disparities in uh, breast cancer, and a number of other um, conditions. Uh, and you know, and when we when we think about disparities, you know, uh, yes, we do think that there are some uh, biological mechanisms uh, that are probably at play, but we believe that the major mechanisms really are much more related to social determinants, including access to quality health care. Uh, so you're making some really um, interesting and uh, important points here, um, Dr. Ravenel. The um, 
the sad part about this for me is that we're coming up, <laughs> we're coming up on our break here, and uh, and I have so much more that I would like to um, uh, to discuss with you. I know we have some other guests coming up in the show. Um, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your experiences and insights. Um, I do hope you'll come back because I would like to talk more about COVID. I'd like to talk more about the vaccines, and there's so much more that I would like to share um, with our listeners and 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 learn from you um, in the conversation. So I do hope you'll come back. Uh, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Thibaldo. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. We will be right back. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're going to continue our in-depth look at efforts to combat disparities in healthcare and improving health outcomes for black men with our next guest, David Brown. Well, Dr. Ravenel would be the first to tell you that the success of initiatives like uh, the Men's Health Initiative and, and other work that's happening in the community depends in large part on the dedication of peer advocates like David Brown, who do the delicate work of reaching out to black men and persuading them to take a leap of faith and get screened for hypertension, colorectal cancer, and other diseases that disproportionately affect their community. It is a job for which he is especially well-suited. A 
professional musician, a percussionist, to be precise, with a strong spiritual practice. David spent 15 years performing, teaching, and preaching in Japan. Ultimately, he returned to his roots in the United States, where he looked for new ways to give back. After serving as youth minister in Queens, New York, he joined the Division of Decision Science at New York University's Grossman School of Medicine, where he met Dr. Ravenel and began his new career as a community health worker. David, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, you've come um, to a very traditional discipline, medicine, through a very untraditional route. How did you connect with Dr. Ravenel, the (laughs) Men's um, Health Initiative, and what were your initial impressions of the project? So um, I connected with Dr. Ravenel uh, through, I was looking for work when I I had recently come back from Japan. I was working at a church as a youth minister. I was running a basketball uh, program there as well, but I was also looking for full-time work. And uh, one of the members of the church uh, let me know about the position that was open at NYU um, uh, at the CHW. And so I just, I just, you know, went on the interview and it was successful. And that's how we got started. That was when I first met Dr. Rav, as we, we call him. Dr. Rav. Well, um, that sounds yeah, we call great. Yeah, we yeah, as far as yeah. my impression of the program, I thought it was, uh, I was impressed with it because it was based in service. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm always impressed with um, any program that has to do with trying to serve the community and trying to, uh, you know, combat issues and solve problems that, that they're facing. So that, that was like a big draw for me. Well, and I love that career networking at uh, at church. My oldest brother's a minister, so he'd like to hear he'd, he'd love to hear that story. That's great. Right, no doubt, yeah, um, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's great, great networking. Yeah, um, David, I'm curious. Um, how did the barbershop owners respond to you and your invitation? What were those conversations like? Where did they take place? How did you build that trust? Okay, so um, what we did uh, firstly, we um, we kind of canvassed the neighborhoods to get a sense of what barbershops were in certain areas, like in Harlem and Brooklyn. And we worked throughout the five boroughs, so we kind of, that's how we kind of got in a sense of where we would go. And then, you know, we would just typically just go into a barbershop and ask to speak to the owner. And if the owner was there, we would just explain, uh, we would introduce ourselves and explain as, you know, as briefly as possible uh, what we would like to do, like the way we'd like to partner with them, um, what the program entailed, and we had little packets with us that we could leave with them information and, and whatnot. And then, um, you know, they would, typically these guys would be pretty open to, because, mm-hmm. because barbershop uh, owners tend to be like um, unofficial community leaders because in a barbershop, you know, so many issues uh, get discussed in the barbershop. That's kind of just important to um, black men in particular. So those conversations would go would go pretty well. I mean, occasionally we might be met with a bit of you know skepticism, um, but yes. for the most part, you know, we were successful in convincing them that it was something worth nice. doing. And you know, we also offered an incentive too. So you know, it, it would yeah. nice. go pretty well. I love it. I love it. Um, David, take us through mm-hmm. a typical day, reaching out to customers at a barbershop, if there is such thing as a, as a typical day. What, how do you begin the process? How do you break the ice? How do you, how do you kind of set it up? Okay, so, you know, we would, 
when we were doing the um, the blood pressure initiative, uh, it was a little easier because uh, we would set a tent up outside the shop, you know, and uh, so guys could kind of see what we were doing as they entered the barbershop. So it was just a matter of, um, it was easy to break the ice because we had, <laughs> we had the blood pressure machines there kind of as a, a way for them to kind of see to what we're doing, you know. And uh, so it'd just be a matter of, um, hey, man, you want to check your blood pressure today? You know, kind of a thing. And uh, they are, oh, sure, why not? You know, I think my pressure's good. You know, usually that's, you know, the response we get. And we also got the I'm good, nah, I'm good response, which was pretty pretty prevalent as well. And um, when we had instances where guys might not want to do it, we would just kind of, well, it's only going to take a second. You know, how long it's going to take for you to, you know, check your pressure just to make sure that you're, you're good, you know. And um, so, yeah, a lot of guys would sit at the table and, you know, um, you know, we check the pressure and we just explain what the results meant and we kind of take it from there. But, um, yeah, that was with the blood pressure. It was a little bit easier because we did have the, the table set up outside. And, of course, you had some guys who... Uh, were kind of nervous to know what their blood pressure was, too. So, you know, we dealt with a lot of different dynamics in terms of that. But overall, yeah. overall, it was, you know, we got a good response. You know. But let, let's let's talk more about that. Nah, I'm good. <laughs> you call it the nah, I'm good syndrome. And I know, yeah, you know, it can't be exactly tough. I mean, was. We, we, I'm sorry, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, you know, you're approaching these strangers. You want to talk about, like, personal matters that can be, you know, maybe scary. Maybe they have no symptoms. They're thinking, oh, my God, is this going to cost me something? And then, no, I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, so how do you how do you overcome that? No, I'm good. How do you get to the next step? Um. Well, if, if, a, if a guy's telling me he doesn't really want to check his blood pressure, the, the first thing I would I would appeal to is the fact that it doesn't take that long, like I said. And um, then we might talk about how um, it's a good thing to know your blood pressure, you know, just on, you know, how's, I would, you know what I would say? I would say, well, how's your diet? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because if I get a sense of what they're eating, then, you know, it might prompt them to think about, well, well you know, I have been kind of picking out on, uh, you know, fried food lately, or, you know, I do love my uh my my bacon, egg, and cheese in the morning, or whatever it is, you know, so things like that would kind of kind of prompt them to well, you know what, maybe I better check this to make sure I'm good, you know, uh, and I would even say sometimes when they said, nah, I'm good, I would say, are you really good? you know 'cause I you know mm-hmm. as long as you're not mm-hmm. being belligerent, you know the guys are pretty friendly, so uh as long as they don't feel like they're being attacked or you don't make them feel uh, guilty, you know. Um, yeah, you might kind of persuade them to sit down and, and, and take, and a lot of times too, if someone else was doing it, then they would do it, you know? Right. You right. That's not, yeah, them. that's great. Right. Yeah, yeah buddy. That's right. Doing encourage. it. Yeah. And I it mean, come on, who doesn't them. love their bacon, you know, who doesn't love their bacon really? So sometimes the owners would, would, before we even got a chance to, Try and convince them the owner would would literally come outside and force them to sit down. You wow. know, yeah. So that was yeah. that was a part of it too, because of the because of the rapport that they had. You know, 
Yes, lead by example, right? Lead by example. Yeah. So now, yeah, so yeah, quickly, we're 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 uh, starting to get up on a break here, David. But um, you know, so on site mm-hmm. blood pressure, we sit down. It takes a minute, right? But that's a little different from a colorectal cancer screening, right? So how do you right, how do you definitely. ramp up from doing a quick blood pressure to talking about something like a colonoscopy or a colon cancer screening? Um, well, we would ask the guys, like, if once we, because the pressure had to read a certain, certain, we had to get certain numbers in order to invite them into the next step. So if they passed that criteria, then we would let them know that we're also interested in getting men screened for colorectal cancer. We would ask if they had ever been screened before. And if they said no, then we would uh, invite them to uh, participate in the next step part of the study, which would include like the navigation piece um, where we would contact them by phone and give them more of an education about uh, the process of getting screened. And then we would talk about um, the different kinds of, the different, I'm sorry, types of screenings uh, like, you know, a fit test or um, the colon cancer screening itself, like the colonoscopy. And we would just give them details. And try and just, we would educate them basically. And, you know, if there were barriers, we would discuss those too and see if we could, you know, overcome those and get them to see the importance of getting screened. And hopefully they would, they would agree to it, you know, but it was a process. It would take some time. Sure. And just quickly, as we go to the break here, David, are, um, you're seeing some success. Are you able to convince folks to get in and get those screenings? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we, um, we definitely got guys to see the importance of doing it. And, but we were working with several different um, populations um, where we had a church arm and we had a barbershop arm. And the church arm tended to be a little more open to readily getting the screening. You know, barbershop, you got a, different, a lot of different type of people coming in from different uh, backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds. So um, that could affect you know, the way they see uh, us being in the barbershop, the way they see uh, dealing with something like cancer, you know. So it, it definitely, uh, it varied in terms of their responses, but we, we had a pretty good, um, we were able to convince quite a, a lot of guys to go ahead on and, and see the value in getting getting it done. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. It's just um it's it's great to hear, David, the success, the success that you're having. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking uh, with uh, with David Brown, and David is a, a community health worker and taking some uh, community, uh, somewhat unconventional approaches to reaching out to black men in the community uh, through barbershops to educate about health issues, to provide some on the spot screenings, and educate about cancer screenings. We've got to take a quick break here, but don't go away. We have a lot more that we wanted to, to discuss with uh, David. This is Kim Chibaldo, frankly speaking about cancer. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. 
Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. With me is David Brown, a former musician and preacher who now works as a peer advocate at the Division of Decision Science at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine. We've been having a fascinating conversation about his work helping to combat disparities in healthcare and improving outcomes for black men. David has worked closely with Dr. Joseph Ravenel, Dr. Rav, as they call him, who was with us uh, Mm -hmm. earlier in uh, the show. Um, David, in your work, you use many of the same skills, I imagine, you perfected as a preacher, as a musician, sensitivity, empathy, and ability mm-hmm. to improvise, and understanding of human nature. When you began your work as a community mm-hmm. health worker, did you expect that those experiences would serve you in this work? Um, well, I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it, it definitely uh, translated into what um, I'm doing in terms of community work because it's kind of it's kind of the same thing. You, you just you're connecting with people, and um, you know, as a musician, definitely um, just kind of vibing with people. And you know, when you're in a situation musically, and everybody's feeling good because they're all on you're all on the same you know wavelength, and it's it's great, and you're all kind of it's like a moment of. Uh, of peace between strangers, you know what I mean? And that definitely, I think, contributed to, um, you know, this issue of just being able to connect with people. And then definitely just from a spiritual standpoint, for sure, I really feel like that, the, the issue of what true leadership really looks like or really is, 
which has 100% to do with being in service to other people, definitely um, those scriptures and, you know, really learning how to put other people first and, and not to think so much of yourself that you're not willing to put yourself out there for someone else um, definitely um, helped me to, you know, prepare to do uh, work, you know, connecting with community, and, and that. It, it definitely yeah. helped yeah. tremendously. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, David, you. Uh, the COVID pandemic had revealed some pretty ugly truths about systemic racism in our nation, about inequities in healthcare, right. barriers to care, mm-hmm. lack of trust in the mm-hmm. system, um, experienced by so many right. people of color in our country. You've been on the front lines for over a decade, engaging with real people and their concerns in a really right. you know, mm-hmm. personal way. So what are the concerns and doubts that people have shared with you? Um, what would you like you know, healthcare professionals to know? And, and talk about the importance of trust. Well, okay, so I think one of the biggest things, uh, I mean, obviously, we encountered, depending on what neighborhood we were in, you know, we encountered, well, yeah, we encountered lots of folks that had their their doubts about um, maybe not so much us, but the healthcare system in general. And I think it just, it just comes from a place of, um, you know, having dealt with, you know, the blatant um, racism that's definitely kind of, it's just systemic in our country. So um, some of the things we've heard have been that, you know, the system just can't be trusted because they've never really had uh, our interests, our best interests at heart. So why should, what's making why are you guys any different or why is this different from how it's always been? And, and for me, I think one of the biggest ways to, to, to help people to trust you is to be honest about the situation. You know, like if I yeah. ever came across, uh, obviously, you know, if, if someone confronts me and says that, you know, they don't trust even the fact that I'm standing in the barbershop, trying to convince them to do something for the man, so to speak, you know, my, my thing would be not to dispute or not to make them feel like they didn't have a right to be, um, you know, to, to be suspicious or to have their, you know, their suspicions about my presence in the barbershop, even though, you know, there's the, the cultural, you know, we're both black men. You know, I, it, the thing is not to, you can't make them feel bad for, for, you know, being being suspicious because we've been through so much. So I would just embrace it. I would embrace it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. the, the the medical community, just being able to really call a spade a spade and just, you know, let's not pretend that we don't have issues. If we admit that we have issues, that's a real way to let a person know. Now, we understand why you feel this way. And so... Right. You know, let's tackle it together. Let's take a look at what this it. program really is, right? And yep. what what the positive effects will be if you participate and see it as a way to start chipping away at a really big problem, which is you can't get the help we're trying to give you because you don't trust where it's coming from, and we understand. But if you participate, you can still, you, you know, you, it will impact your health, 
which right. is the overall goal, you know, what we're trying to do, you know? Right, right. Um, David, we're getting to the end of our show, which makes me very sad because I have so many things I want, I want to discuss oh with you. But um, wow. oh. I know, I know. But um, David, that if you... I know it goes by quickly. I know, but David, if you were, um, if you had this opportunity to talk to black men today who are listening, to persuade them mm-hmm. to be more proactive, what would you say to them? And also, you know, tell me about the important role of mothers, wives, sisters who can play a significant role in convincing them to take action. Okay, so I think if I'm talking to any any black man or you know if any black man that's listening to this program, I would say that ultimately, um, what uh, health disparities research is here to do is to try and close the gap on uh, in terms of the disproportionate way that men, black men, are impacted uh, in regards to their health in different areas: uh, prostate cancer, colon cancer. Um, the list goes on: high blood pressure, things of that nature. I would just say that uh, try and look at the outcomes, like the things that we're trying to accomplish and see if it lines up with your own personal values, if it lines up with what you would like to achieve even in your, just in your space, in your personal space, you know, with your family. Um, It is something that's going to impact you positively. And for the wives, uh, I would say they tend to be the ones that kind of make black men be more attentive in terms of um, their health. And I would say to them, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep encouraging your black men to, you know, go to the doctor and um, take the initiative to maybe uh, try and make some changes in uh, your diet and things like that to try and promote your own health, you know, especially for your family, you know. Yeah. So listen to those women, those strong women in your life. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt, because they have yeah. the best interest at heart, and they're not going to pull punches, you know, because... And the, fam- and the family's interest, so. that's right, that's right. Um, yeah. David, I can't believe we're at the end of the show. It has been um, such a pleasure talking with you today. I'm so grateful for the insights and experiences no, you shared it. with our listeners. And I, I, I do hope you'll come back, because I have a lot more um, that I want to discuss with you and a lot more questions for you, uh, but it's been a pleasure having you. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim T with the Cancer Support Community. We've got a host of free resources for patients and families in person, online, on the phone. Check us out at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. You could also call our helpline. Talk to one of our navigators at 888-793-9355. Again, check us out at cancersupportcommunity.org. I'm Kim Tibaldo. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support